Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab bint Yunus, and today's guest is Sheikh Shaheen al-Rahman. Sheikh Shaheen al-Rahman graduated in 2014 from a traditional Islamic seminary in the UK. In 2021, he completed a master's degree at the University of Warwick in 2021 in Islamic education, theory, and practice. A thinker, educator, and writer, he is the founder of Al-Rahma, a da'wah platform based in his hometown of Northampton. Professionally, the Sheikh works as a curriculum writer for a publishing house in London. Welcome to the show, Sheikh Shaheen. A pleasure to be here. So as a voracious reader and someone very involved in Muslim bookstagram, as we call it, I get a lot of questions about whether Muslims are allowed to dabble in poetry and fiction. There are more and more Muslim writers who are writing novels. They're being published both by mainstream publishers as well as Muslim publishing houses. And Muslim authors often find themselves wondering what the limits are to what they can include in novels, especially if they want to have genuinely engaging stories with character arcs. But many feel uncomfortable writing about characters who do haram things. There's this idea that it's equivalent with promoting sinful acts. So on all of this, you know, like, what's your take on Muslim involvement in literature, particularly poetry and fiction? And I want to start with poetry, um, because in the Quran, there are ayat which seem to condemn poets. In Surah Al-Shu'ara, from ayat 221 to 224, Allah talks about those upon whom the devils descend. And he says, uh, the translation of the meaning is, and the poets, only the deviators follow them. These are really strong words. So how would you explain these ayat, especially given that we know that a famous Sahabi, Hassan ibn Thabit, was a poet. So, you know, can you break that down for us? There's quite a lot of things to get through. We'll try to unpack this one by one, inshallah. And we'll start off with the verses in the Quran that seem to condemn or not seem to condemn but actually do condemn poets. Now what's interesting here is there is a context to what's going on. Immediately before the verse is about only the deviants follow the poets, immediately before this we find verses about psychics or astrology. So there is a clear link here between what's going on. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala initially says should I inform you about whom the devils tanazzal, they descend on? They descend on every sinful liar. They lend an ear, as in to listening to, uh, they try to listen to the angels. Uh, we'll try to cover a hadith about this. There is a an important hadith about astrology or the, or the nature of how the jinns, they listen into the angels and they pass on some types of messages to the human wali on the earth. But the Quran, most importantly, says, And most of them are liars. So immediately after that, the Quran says, That only the deviant follow the poets. And it clarifies what this means. Do you not see that they wander into every single valley? And they say what they do not do. So can you see here, there's a clear link between uh, lying and trying to impress people with false knowledge and things. Mm -hmm. But what's really important for Muslims here 
is the next verse, because the next verse gives an important caveat. And I feel sometimes when people condemn poetry or when people today condemn poetry, they tend to ignore the following verse, which is So it makes a clear exception for those who believe and they do righteous deeds and they mention Allah often, they remember Allah often and they take revenge after they have been wronged or they stand up for themselves after they've been wronged. So if the poets are people who believe in Allah, do righteous deeds, they remember Allah and they stand up for right causes and stand up for themselves after they've been wronged or stand up for the people who have been oppressed, you know, good moral kind of content, then the Quran itself makes a clear exception for that. And we don't really need to infer anything further from here. It's not like a scholarly inference that we're taking here. The Quran itself makes this exception. So there's definitely a, as you said, an exception for poets who are essentially using their skills for the betterment of the ummah, you'd say. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. That's the way to look at it if we're going to analyze these verses within the context of the Quran's condemnation. However, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, the Quran is talking about a specific type of poetry or there's a, a specific angle that that is coming from. So it's not really an exception for, you know, righteousness because everything is permissible by default until something can be proven to be haram. So speaking about God, you know, writing poetry about the last day, praising the Prophet ﷺ, all of these things would be permissible by default mm-hmm. until and unless there is a reason for it to be haram. So now those verses that condemn the poets is talking specifically about people who tell lies or they blaspheme against the Prophet ﷺ. They call him names, they call him a psychic or a, a soothsayer, they call him a poet, all of these types of things, they try to put him into disrepute. So... This is why actually Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah, he's a very, very famous scholar mm. uh, who passed away in 1973, I believe, with a very important tafsir of the Qur'an. He is the first one probably that I've seen who draws an explicit link between the previous verses about psychics or soothsayers and these verses about poetry. And interestingly, what he says is, in the minds of the mushtikin, in the minds of the pagans, especially, you know, talking 14, 1500 years ago, there was a direct link in their minds between kahana and shi'r, between soothsaying or fortune-telling and poetry. So they used, to fe- they used to believe that every poet essentially has a devil with him who dictates the words of poetry to him or inspires him. Oh, this makes a lot more sense. This definitely clarifies it and gives more context in particular because obviously today when we talk about poetry in the West, um, you know, if you're talking classical poetry, you're thinking... Um, you're thinking the the original classics, right? Lots of almost ballad-styled poems, uh, something you've st- studied in literature class, things like that. And those tend to be pretty benign, whether it's talking about nature or it's talking about personal self-reflection or waxing lyrical about someone's beloved. And we don't have necessarily an association with the supernatural, as it were. So... This explanation really sheds some light on that and definitely makes it more contextual because, yeah, a lot of, you know, people who are engaged in literature, Muslims who who are drawn to the field, they do have these concerns. They read these ayat and they're like, oh, hold on a second. Like, what is it about poetry that's so terribly wrong? Um, and you mentioned as well, like, there are hadith about poetry as well, if you want to kind of expound upon those and explain that as well. Before we get to that, you rightfully pointed out something called nostalgia bias. You know, you said when we think about 
classical poetry, when you think about what the Baikons have done, you think about the elite kind of, you know, high-end literature. But it's not always been like that. And the reason why we think of it in this way, actually, it has always been like that, in that every time new generations come about, they always look fondly to the past and all the good things that happened in the past. But what they forget is all the bad things that happened. Yeah. Yeah. what you have to do is now when we look at when we consider poetry we're thinking about the elite of society yeah and it's mm-hmm. true they were the intellectual elite of society but you also have to remember that there was a lot of you know for lack of a better word trash that was happening at the same time so if we just changed our perception a little bit from poetry and we think of musical songs yeah so now you know when people say today don't listen to songs don't listen to music immediately what do you think of you think of the bad things you think of essentially the trash that's happening right Right. And it's always been like that, like, you know, TV or film or something, people look fondly at the 90s now, yeah, or the 2000s, and, and they say, oh, wow, you know, there were so many great artists and so, uh, so much art that happened. There was a golden era of Hollywood or something, I think they say 70s or 80s. Yeah, yeah. That's because they're thinking about only the good things because they've passed the test of time. What about all the trash that's been forgotten? Yeah, yeah so, that's right. So now when we look at this, if you look at what Ibn Ashur is essentially saying about the poets, and if you look at the Qur'ani context here, and the kind of condemnations that we find, it's very clear that there was a mainstream level of trash, yeah? And it was only a minority of intellectual elites who spoke good literature, or or they, you know, they produced good poetry and good literature. Mm -hmm. So that's what's passed the test of time. And when we're looking at, you know, pre-Islamic poetry now, and when we're looking at early Islamic poetry now, we only see the good things. So we look fondly at that and we think, oh no, what's going on? Even today, when we look at like John Milton or William Shakespeare or Percy Shelley, or yeah, something like yeah. that, you see all the great, but <laughs> we don't see all the trash. Whereas today, we'll see what are these so-called poets doing on Instagram or Tumblr. Or oh God, like don't get me started on Instagram poetry. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So are these so-called Instagram poets going to pass the test of time? Or when in yeah. you know 2050, or let's say in 100 years from now, 200 years from now, when people look back at the Windsor Times, let's say, will they be exploring Instagram poetry? Or are they going to be looking at people who have had something original and artistic to contribute to society? Mm-hmm. So th- we're always going to have this nostalgia bias where we forget our own childhood, we forget our youth, we forget the trash that actually happened. You know, we say, oh, back in my day, it wasn't like this. When we were children, it wasn't like this. It actually was. But he just forgot about it and you sometimes it could even be worse yeah 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 absolutely like you know when um people talk about they say oh muslims are doing this now muslims are doing that now you know the past wasn't as romantic as we like to think you know we've had people drinking alcohol and they were committing sinna doing all sorts of things going mm-hmm. on in the past and you know it, we brush you under the carpet and perhaps rightly so in some sense but what tends to happen is we end up romanticizing the past and forgetting what actually happened so now, bringing this back to the Qur'an here, what he's saying is, that, at least what Ibn Ashur is saying, is if there's a link between poetry and, let's say, soothsaying in their times, this gives further context to when the Qur'an challenges the mushrikeen and talks about how the pagans refer to the Qur'an as, uh, this is the word of a poet, or this is the word yeah. of a soothsayer. And the Qur'an says, This is not the word of a poet. How little do you believe? And it's also not the word of a soothsayer. How little you take heed. So why does it link these two concepts together? Why is shi'ar and kahana, why is poetry and soothsaying, fortune telling, ending up with the unseen and getting involved with, you know, the supernatural world? Why is all of that linked? And I think this gives us a clear understanding of what exactly is being prohibited or condemned 
and what the Prophet either permitted, actively listened to, or even encouraged, like you said about Hassan ibn Thabit. That's great. So yeah, I wanted to say like if you could expand also about hadith about poetry, because those are also quite strong. And would you say like, you know, that's related to the exact same issue of, you know, the link between poetry and soothsaying, or are there different elements to it? There are multiple elements to it. So one of the most famous um, hadiths that condemn poets or poetry, we actually find in Sahih Muslim. And the Prophet said at that point, Take hold of shaytan or catch shaytan and detain him. That a man's body is completely filled with pus is better for him than for his body to be filled with poetry. That's quite... A visual. <laughs> it is very visual, isn't it? It's very artistic and poetic, you could say, to some degree as well. So now, again, let's look at this carefully. If we break this down, you find the very first words are detain shaytan. So khudu shaytan, msiku shaytan. Again, why is shaytan being linked with poetry here? And we find, you know, somebody being obsessed with poetry to that level, and this is exactly what they've memorized and just completely full of. That's what's being condemned here. So if we look at the analogy again of, you know, today we're talking about pop culture, music, and things like that. Just imagine if somebody is just completely obsessed with music lyrics and that's all they've memorized and, you know, they, they just know every single song out there. Come on, you know, what's wrong with you? You need to have a bit yeah. of a life. So it's, it's that kind of context that's going on. And interestingly, what the scholars have said is there's been a lot of discussion in terms of the scholars of hadith or the commentators of hadith with regard to this um, hadiths as well. So interestingly, some scholars have actually said these, this condemnation is about poets who blaspheme against the Prophet ﷺ. They make a mockery of the Prophet ﷺ. However, that doesn't seem too convincing specifically because what the condemnation is here is about an obsession with it and having so much of it where you essentially just memorize so much of it until your body and your memory is full of it. So clearly it can't be about blasphemy because even a little bit you of could have, You can memorize plenty of non-blasphemous poetry. Yeah, and that would still be wrong, essentially. What- I think that would point to the the issue of like how a Muslim is intended to spend their time. like Everything within limits, within reasonable limits, uh, and obviously prioritizing the deen over all else. Whereas, and you made a good point about the analogy being like people who are obsessed with music and memorize music lyrics today. There's plenty of people like that. You know, veritable encyclopedias of different albums and the entire history of music and it's, it's just a field that a lot of people immerse themselves in very deeply to the extent where that becomes their primary focus in life yeah exactly so we look at poetry as literature they obviously would have looked at poetry as just their normal entertainment their artistic mm-hmm. cultural kind of uh, manifestation but with regard to this hadith specifically what you find is it can't really be about blasphemy but what the scholars have said including imam and nawabi and others is that by default, everything would be mubah and the poetry itself would be mubah so long as there is no fortune in it and so long as there is no indecency like shirk, like blasphemy, like, you know, um, immoral acts and anything like that. And what they've actually said is, now this is really interesting because this gives us a a general rule of thumb, you could say, is that poetry is essentially speech. So Mm -hmm. good poetry is like good speech and bad poetry is like bad speech. Mm -hmm. So again, it's about the lyrics, it's about the content. And if on a descriptive level, if you just look at what was mainstream in terms of poetry, in terms of music, in terms of people's entertainment, 
it was essentially trash or it was essentially, you know, bad things that doesn't really befit a believer or somebody who's trying to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and live a good life and grow themselves to the best of their ability and leave a good influence on society. It doesn't befit people like that. So now, if this is what's going on, then it makes sense why the Prophet told Hassan ibn Thabit, and this is what you asked earlier, to you know go ahead and mock the disbelievers in response to uh, them blaspheming against the Prophet And he also said, And may Jibreel be with you. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't just about separation of the church and state kind of thing. Well, this is a religious context and this is a secular context. The fact that he said, may the aid of Angel Jibreel be with you, says that there is an Islamic or Shari support. Merit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That helped so much for myself, even though, you know, like I said, I'm somebody who's pretty immersed in this kind of thing. And I had some awareness of it, but it really, really helped, alhamdulillah, that you were able to clarify so much of that context. And I think that's really important for, again, any Muslim who's involved in the arts and literature to keep in mind. Some of those points that you made are applicable to all forms of of creativity, really, right? It's not just about, oh, just poetry itself, but... Uh, Absolutely. So even if you look at, for example, journalism and news, yeah? Now, you know, um, those of us who are, you could say, millennials or in the younger generation, you'd see, like, um, our parents' generation just watch a lot of news. They just sit there watching the news all the time. And <laughs> look, you're supposed to just watch the news like 20 minutes and just get on with your life. Yeah. You don't watch the same thing over and over and over again. You know, the Queen's gone to Elizabeth, her coffin's gone back to Buckingham Palace, and just <laughs> yeah. King Charles's new speech or whatever. And it's the same thing over and over again. You know, we say the same thing, don't we? But new, if you just watch the news all day, it's going to mess in with your head. just going to mess with your mind. Yeah. But that doesn't mean journalism itself is a bad art to get into. It doesn't mean journalism is a craft or a trade that's worthy of being condemned. It doesn't mean that. There's a difference between getting into journalism and, you know, offering the truth about what's going on in the world, staying away from propaganda and trying to, you know, do good in society, essentially, tell a good story. That's a very different thing from just being obsessed with politics of the world and swallowing in the propaganda uncritically and letting that have a negative impact on society. So it's the same thing. Poetry back then was essentially their media as well. So they used to tell stories of history or of their own society, what's happened, the wars that were going on. Just like, you know, somebody would steal a camel or something from the neighbor. Mm-hmm. And that's it. The entire tribes would just erupt in violence for like 40 years. I'll have a war for 40 years. Some Somebody a couple of generations later will, will compose a poem about it. And then 1400 years later, we'll go to Dardos <laughs> poetry. So it's exactly the same thing that's happening. It's an obsession with things that might not be bad in its essence or inherently bad. But descriptively speaking, what tends to happen has a negative impact. And that negative impact rightfully should be condemned. Absolutely. So kind of moving on from there, storytelling is found everywhere in Western society in a variety of forms. There's fiction, there's story, there's filmmaking, there's poetry that we just spoke of. So to start with, what is your perspective on the purpose of storytelling? And more importantly, is it sanctioned from an Islamic perspective? Oh, now, now you get into the big questions now. So is storytelling sanctioned from a Quranic perspective? Well, one third of the Quran itself is stories. Mm-hmm. So that should tell us if around 30 odd percent of the Quran is storytelling of the previous prophets of nations at the time of the Prophet wasallam, or even parables. Parables are really important as well. And we'll get to yes. that shortly. Now, j- just to clarify, stories are generally about you're telling, you're narrating an event or something, especially of somebody's growth or something. And parables 
Because when you strike examples or hypothetical examples, you make an abstract concept even clearer to understand. So both of those things go hand in hand. So qisas wal amthal, so stories and parables. Even in the mm-hmm. biblical tradition, the Quranic tradition, in the Western tradition, everything, storytelling and parables have always gone hand in hand. So mm-hmm. now the purpose of stories or the purpose of storytelling now, stories in Arabic is qisas, with a kasra on the half, and mm-hmm. qasas is storytelling, although qasas can mean stories as well, and khabar al-maqsus. However, qasas would mean storytelling. So now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says at the end of Surah Yusuf, لَقَدْ كَانَ فِي قَصَصِهِمْ عِبَرَةٌ لِأُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ That in their stories, or in the narratives of the previous prophets, or the previous nations, are morals, عِبَرَةٌ لِأُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ For the people of intelligence. Indeed, in, in the story of Yusuf and his brothers, are signs for the inquisitive, people who ask questions, people who are curious. So the Quran uses storytelling with the purpose of teaching important life lessons and concepts. Now, I tend to tell people... It becomes the vehicle for connecting the listener or the reader to the deeper lessons involved. Spot on, yes. You're right about it being a deeper lesson. So, for example... You know, the Quran tells us very clearly, don't take interest, don't consume wine, don't eat pork, you know, don't engage in zina, things like that, do good to people. Clean, you know, normal things that are easy to understand, it tells us in a direct way. But does the Quran ever tell us, for example, in an explicit way, does it tell us, be brave? Does mm-hmm. it tell us about nostalgia? Does it tell us about any abstract concept? It actually tells, teaches us bravery through the story of Musa alayhi salam. Now, people yeah. might think, okay, well, you know, what's the story of Musa alayhi salam? It's about ancient Egypt, it's about magicians, it's about this, it's about... It's not about magicians, and it's not about, for example, slavery or something like that. Those types of things obviously happened and they played a role in it. But the story itself is about bravery. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a video on that. Somebody could look at if they're interested in it. But the point is, storytelling has always been an important vehicle for teaching difficult concepts. And that has evolved. Like, you know, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, there'll be a grandfatherly figure sitting in a circle with his grandchildren or something around a campfire, around some tents, telling him stories about their tribes, nations, or about his parents or his mm-hmm. grandparents or something. That's changed now. Then eventually you got the whole Greeks and stuff doing epic poetry, really, really long tragedies mm-hmm. and stuff. And then you've got other forms of long-form storytelling, like novels came out in the Western world. And now it's gone to a visual medium as well. So mm-hmm. films and stuff like that. It's all storytelling. Even people who go into YouTubing and content creation they tell you it's all about storytelling. And the same thing with journalism. You're trying to find a story and you report that story. So if there's no yeah. story to tell, then there's nothing to give to the news. But if there is a story that you can make from it, then you give that. The reason why this stuff is important yeah, is because storytelling is actually what impacts our hearts. Now, yeah. you know, sometimes we talk about, for example, the debate culture and, you know, what's the point in debates? It's not going to make anybody become a Muslim and stuff like that. Well, number one, that's... That's actually wrong because debate is actually uh, sanctioned in the Quran itself. Yeah, But ignoring that, there is a point here about intellectual debates and intellectual curiosity and just delving to philosophy and science and stuff like that. It works to a limit. Now, you can be intellectually convinced of the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but that alone wouldn't make you move. It wouldn't make you want to embrace Islam. What is it? It doesn't have an emotional component to it that really connects with you personally. Exactly. This is why you'll see a lot of people say, you know, the people of the past, when they accepted Islam, it was because of the good character of the Sahaba and trading and merchants having honesty in their business and integrity in their business, things like that. Mm-hmm. What I generally say is, oh, now you suddenly understand the arts. 
<laughs> now, the arts alone obviously aren't enough to give you the truth because somebody can teach a battle through poetry or through literature, through storytelling, right. through films, which is why people rightfully condemn things like Bollywood and Bollywood or anything that has a cultural impact on society on that level where mm-hmm. they're promoting things that we perceive to be ills of society. Yeah. Yeah. But the point is, it has that impact. Yeah. So what we essentially need to do is marry the science with the arts. We have to marry the intellectual uh, rigor with the emotional or the artistic and spiritual element of it. So there's a reason why, yeah, debates might not lead to hundreds of people accepting Islam, but reading the story of Malcolm X does. Watching Arthur yeah. does. Yeah. Looking at all the stories about good things and relating to the protagonist's journey, it moves you on that level and makes you think, okay, you know what, I'm going to need to do this as well. I want to move in that direction as well. So this is where the arts actually come in. That's a powerful point because, you know, especially for... Desis, Arabs, Muslims in general, very STEM-oriented when it comes to intellectual pursuits. And there has been for quite a while, I feel, a denigration of the creative arts to begin with. Like, this is useless. And we see this both culturally in some ways, although I feel like Arabs still hold on to a love of that poetry. And obviously in Urdu, there's still like a very strong poetic tradition. But for those of us in the West in particular, who are not necessarily connected to those literary heritages or those cultural heritages within the quote unquote, strictly religious spheres, there's definitely a looking down on the arts as like, oh, this is all falsehood. This is all a distraction. This is all part of the dunya. This is, you know, this has no place in Islam or Islamic knowledge. But the way that you have articulated all of this is that we actually have a very strong tradition of the arts being used in a spiritual way. And it's a powerful tool. I think uh, for myself, like, I mean, I have a 12 year old daughter now. I teach at a madrasa with lots of little kids and we have a madrasa library. And one of the things we noticed was that the Muslim kids' picture books were very popular with the kids. You know, meanwhile, we've had some people complain, be like, oh, isn't this haram? So there's there's that internal debate and discussion between ourselves. Like, what is the value of this? Is the benefit actually worth it? Or is it just very shallow? Are we just pandering now to un-Islamic influences? You get what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, spot on. I'm really glad you picked up on this, actually, because people who dismiss the importance of the arts or the, any relevance or any benefit of the arts or storytelling or filmmaking or anything else they really have no right to complain that Hollywood or the music industry are polluting the minds of our youth. Because if you're going to say there's no benefit or, or there's no impact of it, then you should also say that, you know, Hollywood and everything else that they criticize has no impact either. But the mm-hmm. fact that they say there, yeah, there's a negative impact here should equally mean that there is a potential for positive impact. Right. So you have to pick a side here. You can't, you know, you can't have the cake and eat it. But I I do understand why uh, Muslims in the West have had some sort of hostility until recent times. I think it's largely because we come from, you know, we're jelly, aren't we? We come from children of immigrants, as they say, say, or immigrant parents, or I don't like to use the word diaspora. Yeah, yeah. I don't like to use words like immigrant uh, in the UK specifically because I don't believe my grandparents were immigrants. They were expats. They came here because the UK needed work. Uh, yeah, so yeah. You know, they weren't asylum seekers. They weren't running away from a war or anything and coming to Britain looking for refuge. That's not what happened. The World right. War II happened. They lost all the men. They needed people from abroad to come and fix the country up. Our grandparents stepped onto the scene and they came through, you know, onto the boats and they settled here. So this is mm-hmm. what happened. It contributed to society in this way. 
so I don't like to use the word immigrant in that sense. We were actually expats or uh, our grandparents were expats. Anyway, mm-hmm. but coming to the point, coming from like largely poorer or working class backgrounds or disadvantaged uh, backgrounds, what happens is we need immediate results in terms of wealth. Yeah. Yeah. And the arts notoriously don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until you reach the really pinnacle of, of your game. There's I mean, no you have to be privileged game. to get into the field to begin with, let alone to Exa- succeed. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> even in the past, this is another reason why scholars actually look down at poets, because you know what? They say what they don't do and things like that. They tell a lot of lies. One of the examples that scholars give is they used to praise people who don't deserve to be praised, and mm. they'll mock people who don't deserve to be mocked. So what tends to happen is they'll go to kings or rulers of their time, and what's yeah. did that with say for Dawla and stuff, and they'll start praising the life out of them, saying, you know, <laughs> the wall outside it is red because of all the um, heads that you've chopped up on the got <laughs> painted that wall in red, you know, things like that. Yeah. And they expect money from them because the kings have to give the money afterwards. And if they don't they give did, that yeah. money, if they don't give that gold, then that, <laughs> that king's reputation is going to be destroyed by that same poet. The same mm-hmm. poet is going to mock the life out of him, yeah? That's one reason why the scholars condemned it. And then we find this, you know, the same thing in the news or the same thing you're going to find in Hollywood, same thing you're going to find everywhere, really. But the power is definitely there. And when it comes to needing money, or when it comes to needing to gain a bit of wealth, the earlier people, especially our parents and grandparents' generations, they couldn't play the long game. They couldn't afford to play the long game and invest. They needed instant gratification, even though that's a term they use for millennials and Gen Z. They actually needed that, you know, do some business. It's a survival necessity. It was a survival, yeah, it's spot on. This is why they couldn't go on holidays, they couldn't go on abroad and travel and see the world and things. This is a privilege our generation and the younger generations are afforded now. Yeah. So now when it comes to the when it comes to gaining that money, you get that through business and you know, selling things, opening up restaurants and shops and stuff like that. And you also get it through uh, generally the STEM, you know, technology and getting into any maths or any science program or law or medicine. So doctors and lawyers generally have a huge privilege in our desi kind of culture. They have that because it leads to immediate money. But now things have evolved from there, you know, and there are people who graduate with like physics degrees and stuff. And because the market is so saturated, they still can't get jobs. And the arts have, people have forged a path now when it comes to video production, when it comes to music production, when it comes to all sorts of forms of the arts, even like graphic design. Yeah. Every business needs a graphic designer now. You know, yeah. you need thumbnails for your YouTube video, whether you need to create a logo for your brand, whether you need posters, with even Muslim organizations like masjids or whatever, you need posters for your events. And if they don't look nice, then it's going to affect your reputation. So things have changed a lot. Now that you can make money through other things or people are doing these things as hobbies. So they might have a day job or something like that, but they, in their spare time, they embrace their creative side. Yeah, it's so actually become this- lucrative now. To a degree, yes. Even when it comes to like writing story, uh, novels or storytelling or something, you you know there are options to self-publish. There are options to go for an independent publisher or a mainstream yeah. publisher. I've actually spoken to a, a Muslim publishing house in the UK, one of the larger ones, and I actually asked him once, the main person, I said, you know, there's a lot of Muslim novelists right now, and you know they have potential, but their quality of writing is actually up to standard. Um, yeah. How do you feel if we open up a novel wing? Yeah, because that particular yeah. That particular publishing house is focused more on, you know, academic stuff or, or right, right. scholarly things from the past and, and translating those into English and stuff. What if you open up a new wing for Muslim novelists where they can have their work published properly? Because if they publish in the mainstream, it's going to get rejected. But if they come here, then at least this professional preserve editor... Preserve the integrity of it. it. Yeah, yeah. So they'll preserve the integrity and they can have it professionally edited. 
because if you go self-published, you know, it, it's an option, but look, you know, it ends up a little bit mediocre. And let's be honest, yeah. it, it happens. Unless oh, you, yeah, I, I have strong feelings about self-publishing. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm not here to, you know, throw shade on any self-publishers. Sometimes it's a decision they need to make. And knowing this dilemma, this is why I spoke to somebody in the UK about it, you know, somebody who owns the publishing house. He said he's more than happy to do that, actually. So in essence, if there's enough demand from Muslim novelists and Muslim storytellers to tell stories that are authentic in terms of our vision in life, I don't mean authentic in terms of stories of historical figures. I don't actually think we should be adapting historical figures, but writing original stories, then mm -hmm. it's possible. Everything is doable. By the way, actually, let's, let's cover that point while I've gone onto that tangent. You know, storytelling here. Yeah? Mm -hmm. One reason that the scholars of the past, like the Muhaddithun, were hostile to it is because stories were always looked at from the lens of history. And remember I said earlier, poetry is the media right. of the time. Stories were, you know, cultural memories that were, uh, that were preserved through these stories and tales and stuff. Yeah. Yeah? So now what happened in the earlier times, or at least in the early Muslim tradition, and I'm sure it's going to happen in many other civilizations as well, is historical truth and fact gets you know it gets blurred with fiction or, or when people add on their own spices or their own imagination into historical truths this becomes a problem so if you're talking about for example prophet musa salam did this or the prophet sallallahu did this or something happened in the past and then you start adding on your own material in there or making up certain types of content what ends up happening is the people get misled into believing that this is part of the religion or this is true and these are true oh, events okay, that yes. history. Whereas the muhaddith's job was to sieve the wheat from the chaff. It was, you know, tamizu sahih min saqim. Yes. What's authentic, what's inauthentic? We're here to, uh, to make this clear. Yeah. You know, in Urdu, they say, that's exactly what their job was. Imagine a documentary. Let's leave the film industry. And in a film, everybody knows is fiction. Novels, everybody knows is fiction. Yeah, that's one reason yeah. it's not that much of a problem. But imagine somebody makes a documentary. Yeah, and in that documentary is a true event or a story that happened. But there, they start twisting things, and because of their own hidden agendas, they push a propaganda through this true event. Yeah, imagine how dangerous that would be on society because the people consuming it would be deceived into believing all of this was true. Yeah, yeah, of course. So then that ends up impacting entire perceptions of reality really spot on yeah and that is the problem this is why lying has actually been defined as or you give the impression to the listener that this is reality or something is true mm -hmm. so Al-Awni, for example he's actually got an, uh, an important article in arabic it'll be great if somebody can translate that about the hadith about somebody who you know woe to the person who tells lies to make the people laugh so you know like comedians and stuff yeah, yeah. And again, he, he goes into like, what does that mean? What doesn't it mean? Yeah. So mm. if you tell stories or making jokes or anecdotes, pretending that this is true, yeah, and making awkward situa situations and things so people believe it to be true and then they laugh at that, obviously this is wrong. This is lying. Right. But if you tell like linguistic puns, yeah, you know, they're not true. Everybody knows that it's not true and you're not deceiving right, anybody right. either. Yeah. Or sometimes there's like an inside joke that friends tend to have, a bit of bad yeah. say, yeah. And you know this isn't true, but it's just, oh, I got you now. You know, you can't <laughs> yeah. like this trick. Those types of things. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that because it's not lying. So now one reason why some scholars look down at fiction, yeah. Yeah, this is this is a big one. Yeah. So I I'll try to wrap this one up and go into fiction at the same time yeah, because this is an important segue. So one reason people have looked down at fiction or in terms of, you know, modern day scholars, I don't believe this was the case in the past, at least in terms of my readings. 
the reason they did that is because they perceived it to be lies. Yeah, they said all of these stories just are made up characters. They're not true. None of this is true. Therefore, it's haram. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I think is a very simplistic way to look at it. In right. the past, they didn't engage in straight up fiction. Yeah, people did. There are some people who did, but they were embraced, and I'll, I'll get to that as well. So what initially happened is there are true events, and people mm-hmm. imposed or projected falsities into that truth. That was a problem that was condemned. Now, people who just engage in straight up fiction through parables and through storytelling and things, their works were actually embraced, and we study it to this day. For example, Abdullah ibn Muqaffa translated, or he rendered rather, the stories of Kalila wa Dimna into yes. Arabic. So it was yeah. an ancient, huge, ancient Indian royal collection of stories that was yep. stolen in a very interesting um, story through a, a Persian spy. Mm-hmm. That itself is a story one day, yeah? Now, yeah. Th- then that ended up in the Persian lands, and Abdullah ibn Muqaffa was a um, Persian convert to, um, either a convert or his parents were converted or something happened. But he was essentially a ethnically Persian person who was culturally Arab. Yeah, you know how, like... Right. I'm, for example, ethnically Bangladeshi, and I'm a, I'm a cultural Brit, yeah? Yes, yes. So it's like that. They were Persians living in the Arab world, so he had a mastery of both languages. He rendered all of those tales into Arabic, and he made his own ones as well, yeah? We studied this, by the way, when we were doing A-level Arabic. So it's full of parables, like, it's full of life lessons, but it's through animals, in the characters of animals. So you'll have animal like a snake and a turtle and a duck or something, and lions. Very much like Aesop's fables. Aesop's Fables, yeah. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Aesop's Fables was actually inspired by, directly okay. or indirectly, by Kalila Wadimna. So we'll give a, a normal English example, yeah? You know, the hare and the tortoise. Yes. Everyone knows about the hare and the tortoise. They have a, a yeah, race, yeah. Which, which one wins? The hare, the rabbit who can just bounce along to the end, or the hare, or, or the tortoise, sorry, sorry, and the tortoise, you know, it takes a long time. Very wins the race, race. That's the message, isn't it? The concept isn't there was an actual hare, an actual tortoise, who had a race, and then the rabbit started thinking, oh, you know what, I'm going to go take a quick nap. It's clearly not a real story. These are just yeah. imagined ideas. These are parables. These are parables, and they are clear ideas that teach a wider story. So parables, mm-hmm. you find these in the Quran itself. You, know, you find, right. you know, like the example of the earth is like this, or, you know, life and death, for yes, example, yes. is compared to plants and trees and crops. Mm-hmm. Things like that happen. You, you've got the Prophet, وسلم, for example, compared this world and what it contains to the wing of a mosquito and things like that. Yes. Yeah? Again, this is another important point. Once we have the artistic awareness, then we can appreciate all of this. But those who don't have the artistic awareness, or especially if they, we have that culture, in, at least in the Asian part of the world, like, oh, you shouldn't look into the Quran because you might get deviated, or you shouldn't look into the books of yeah. the Quran because you might get deviated. What yeah, happens right. there is you have a very limited perception of religion. That's what it is. You have a perception of religion that you impose mm-hmm. onto the Quran and Sunnah yes. rather than benefiting from what it actually says. So when it comes to things like if somebody artistically describes the Prophet ﷺ or compares him to something, how dare you compare the Prophet ﷺ to an inanimate object or something? Yeah, yeah. You have the Sahaba of the comparing the Prophet ﷺ to the moon and saying, "No, oh, he's more yeah. than the moon is." Yeah. Yeah. You have the Prophet ﷺ himself comparing himself and the prophets to bricks of a beautiful house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My example and the example of the prophets. He says, Somebody who builds a house and built a beautiful house, and the people look at it and they're wowed. But mashallah, this is such a beautiful house. But there's one space of a brick that's missing, and the people mm-hmm. say, "This is such a beautiful house." If it weren't for the fact that this little bit needs filling, so essentially, mm-hmm. what he's implying is all the prophets came and delivered Islam in a very beautiful. You know, it's a very beautiful thing, and mm-hmm. there's only one part left, and I am here to complete all of Islam. Uh-huh, yeah. Yes. Now imagine somebody who doesn't have any artistic appreciation; they will think. How dare you compare the Prophet ﷺ to a brick? This is blasphemy. Yeah, yeah. You know? 
And it's like, look, <laughs> it showed them this hadith. It was the Prophet himself who did that. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, this is the method of the disbelievers, and the Quran condemns this mindset. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So stringently literal and and rigid in their not just literal, because literalism is important to a certain respect. The point here is missing the message and you're missing the point and focusing on the wrong things. Mm -hmm. So for example, Allah says in the Quran, in Allah la yastahi an yadriba mathalan ma ba'udatan fama fawqaha that Allah does not shy away from giving any type of example. He doesn't shy away from striking any type of parable, whether it's a mosquito or something even more trivial. Fama fawq tends to mean higher, but it means like right. beyond. So you could say nafis wa fawqan nafis, something that's good and even better than good, beyond good. Or you can say, So this is bad and this right. is beyond bad. So yeah, yeah. here you have uh, something trivial like a mosquito, yeah, and something even more trivial than the mosquito. Allah doesn't shy away from that. But what did the disbelievers say? What did the pagans say? What does God intend with this kind of example? You know, what's God yeah. talking about something trivial like a mosquito for? That type of mindset, how dare you compare this with that? It's like you're missing the point. The point is the picture that is trying to, you know, in Arabic we say mumathallahu. The mithal, the example is never the objective. The mumathallahu, the message that is being delivered by the example, that's what matters. The analogy yes. is what matters, you know, not the specifics of the example. And mm -hmm. again, so what happens is if there's a lack of appreciation of the arts, we end up with societal problems like this, where people yes. misunderstand religion instead of benefiting from what Allah and the Messenger وسلم, want us to benefit from or what they have taught us, you have a sociological descriptive approach to religion and you project that onto religion itself and you project that onto the people of the past. You know, no wonder people become atheists and no wonder people say, oh, you know, religion is just a way to control the masses and stuff. That's yeah. a sociological religion. That is a descriptive religion. That's not a prescriptive religion that yeah. God and his Messenger have prescribed. So really, you would say that a lack of creative and artistic understanding can actually negatively impact our spirituality and our ability to understand the deen itself. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not the one saying this because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself says this. He talks about this is the type of amthal, this is the type of parables that we draw. And none will understand this except the knowledgeable. So you can't be a knowledgeable person without understanding the parables and the stories that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us. So if somebody doesn't understand, like, you know, you, you might see, for example, why does Allah talk about the mountains and the rain and the barren land suddenly becoming lush and lush and green? Why does it talk about that? What's that got to do with anything? Yeah. Then obviously, look, it's going to affect your spirituality. It's going to affect how you understand something. It's going to affect your relationship with Allah and how you perceive Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to affect that. So not only does a lack of artistic appreciation, you know, negatively impact you, I would go a step further and say it's only through a literary appreciation that you can actually get to know who Allah is and what he wants from us and live life as Allah wants of us. You can only do that through appreciating the Quran and the Quran is a literary text. That's a truly powerful perspective to bring because this is something that is often very missed in discussions of understanding the deen. Like I said, you know, there tends to be, particularly in the West, again, this very rigid, narrow perspective of what is Islamic knowledge and is Islamic understanding. And this never comes up. This, again, is the understanding and appreciation for the arts and creativity. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Now, that's been a lot of focus on storytelling and parables and so on and so forth. What about fiction in particular? There are a lot of fatawa out there, and you mentioned it yourself, you know, let's say that it's haram for Muslims to read or write fiction because, oh, it's all lies. But we know, again, from a 
Western perspective, a Western literary perspective, like novels are powerful vehicles for all kinds of messaging, whether whether it can be moral or it can just be an exploration of human nature or questioning society or, you know, there's so many different purposes that fiction serves. And I find it quite reductive to say like, oh, it's all hot up. Like truly there's got to be a more nuanced understanding of it. Yeah, I would even say we don't need to formulate this in a dilemma that you know this is what Muslims are saying and this is what we see in the West or short maybe the Muslims have got it wrong. No, this this is the wrong way to do it because what we find is historically speaking, Muslims had this. They had Khalil Wadinna, they had you know Haybin Yaqvan, they had all of these types of things going on. Yeah. And mm. it's only recently that people who don't appreciate the arts and they were very in favor of other types of things, yeah. They misunderstood things and through a false perception, they gave fatawa that are incorrect. And I say that with due respect, I'm not throwing shade right. on anybody and I'm not right. trying to disrespect any of those scholars who have said this. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm sure they've done other great work and people make mistakes. It's a human error. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that it's up to the later people to come and uh, rectify those mistakes. And in doing that, they're going to make further mistakes that the people in the future will come to rectify that. It's just the cycle of life. Yeah. Right. So any type of criticism that I'm going to engage in on a fiqh level or on a tafsir or hadith kind of level, I don't want anybody to look at this as a criticism or as a lack of a sense of disrespect for the scholars, not at all. Uh, I'm only standing on the shoulders of the giants here. So now when it comes to things like, you know, we've got fiction, we've got all of these things happening. What is fiction? What is a novel? And I would say it actually falls under parables. Yeah. This is why I was stressing on storytelling and parables go hand in hand. Because when people have said in the past, this stuff is wrong because, you know, these are lies. There's no authenticity to it. There's no, this is a baseless narration, for example. They're talking in the context of, we want to give you the historical narrative and we don't want any, you know, Tom, Dick and Harry to come and ruin that with his own spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's going on here. So in fiction, that's not what happens. A novel or a film or a novella or anything like that, any type of hypothetical scenario, it's a parable. It's not a projection onto the past. That only happens when there's adaptations of history and stuff. But even then they make it clear that these are inspired by history. It's not Not an actual representation. Yeah, so what is fiction then? Is it just lying? Is it just, oh, I'm telling you a bunch of lies that this and this happened? Let's say Charles Dickens is talking about great expectations or something, you know, or money comes and corrupts you. Yeah, is he telling you a lie here that money can corrupt you as a person? It's not. So what's happening here is this is a hypothetical situation. This is khayali. This is Mm -hmm. imaginary ideas that you put together to teach a wider truth. Because like we said, you know, the Quran doesn't explicitly tell you to be brave. That you learn bravery through the story of Musa alayhi salam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Charles Dickens might be talking to you about Pip and Miss Havisham and whatever, Magwitch, whatever I think his name was. And through that, he's teaching a deeper lesson that, you know, if you have humble beginnings and you're coming from a poor background, when you become wealthy, don't forget all of that because at the end of it, they're, yeah. the, they're the ones who are going to have your back. Yeah. So it's a very deep message that's going on. So essentially, what a, a novel is or a story or whatever, a fictitious story, is a parable that is usually social commentary or it's a commentary on the human self or human society and it streams a truth in artistic way so it has in order for something to be good appreciated or valid there has to be some kind of truth to it that right. truth doesn't need to be in the events themselves being true this is what um Sheikh mustafa sadiq al-rafi he was a very famous um poet and um what do you call it an adib literateur they say in english mm. he was a very famous adib from the arab world in the last century or so he calls it a sidqul fanni artistic truth that's what you need in poetry that's what you need in the arts an artistic truth can be very different from a factual truth yeah 
Right. So factual truth would be, you know, in an event, this is what happened and this is what didn't happen. But an artistic truth would be very different. What are the emotions that you feel at that time? What is the growth that is happening in that time? How do you perceive certain things? Yeah. So this is why, like, story is not actually about, you know, the external events that happen. Yeah. It's not about an orphan growing up with his brother-in-law and, and his sister or something. That's not what right. the story is. This is called a plot. The story is the journey that he goes through, the internal journey of having an anonymous benefactor who gives you all that yeah. money, become a gentleman, and then you start looking down at your brother-in-law, the one who raised you and stuff, and you get embarrassed by him being around you. That's the story, yeah? So this right. is why, you know, it's, it's sometimes you get criticisms about something like Harry Potter, yeah? Yes, that's exactly what I wanted to bring up, yeah. Yeah, naturally it's going to come down that kind of direction because Harry Potter essentially created an entire generation of readers, yeah. Mm -hmm. Harry Potter is not actually about magic. People say, oh, it's about magic, therefore it's haram, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, if you haven't read it, I can understand why people would say that. And I initially believed that as well for many, many years. I'm not going to go through my own story about how I came (laughs) up with it. But essentially, Harry Potter has got nothing to do with magic. Yeah, it's set mm-hmm. in a magical world. The story is about friendship and bravery. Yeah, that's what the story is. You can do that. You can teach that message through other means. But yeah, the author Jacob Ron wanted to do that in the setting of a magical school. Sure, no problem. That's what she did. But now, even whether it's magic or not, that's a different story in terms of the Islamic concept of sihr. Yes, the same thing as the Western concept of magic, because I don't believe that the Western society has nuances between the supernatural things. For example, I'll give, I'll give another example, yeah? Another famous British author, Roald Dahl. Yes. I love him. He wrote Matilda. Classic. The Giant Peach. Yeah, yeah um, BFG, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, all of that kind of stuff, yeah? Yeah. Now, Roald Dahl, he's got a book called Matilda, a beautiful yep. story about... Wonderful little girl and her family and... <laughs> Go on, carry on. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I forgot most readers or many readers might not know. Yeah. So Matilda is just such a wonderful, wonderful story of a little girl who loves to read and her family is you know, completely indifferent to her. And she's just starved of so much love and affection and honestly, creativity as well. And when she goes to school, she meets this wonderful teacher and then she ends up developing what we would term a superpower. And there's this terrible villainous uh, headmistress and it's it's a rollicking good time. And there is, as with all of his books, a deeper message there. See, this this is why I, want, I wanted to see what you say when it comes to what is the story of Matilda, because what you described is something different from what I was going to say. So what, <laughs> because this is what normal people would say. What you said it isn't wrong at all. Right. But what you said was essentially the plot of the concept of the story. The story yeah. is family neglect. It's about abusive parents or guardians. In the case of Matilda, it's her parents. And in the case of um, Miss Honey, it's her auntie. Yeah. They neglect or abuse their power and authority as guardians. And the girl at the end of it, Miss Honey and Matilda, they both, you know, have a horrible childhood as a result of that. Yeah, that's the story. And Matilda helps Miss Honey, uh, you know, get her, you know, (laughs) they they stand up for themselves after they were wrong. So Miss Honey was clearly wronged here and Matilda helps her, Mm -hmm. you know, stand up for herself and come out of that. Anyway, I'm sure most of the people going to listen to this right now, they would have watched the film but not read the book. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's There's an important point here because the film is American and the book is British. Yeah. And the British ones always want to be better than Yes, yes. Now, what happens here, yeah, is in Roald Dahl's version of the book, the real story, actually, yeah, there's no magic involved. What happens is Matilda develops a tendency to perform miracles. 
So you have the first miracle, mm-hmm. the second miracle, the third miracle, and uh, Miss Honey makes references to Jesus Christ and things like that. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's not magic whatsoever. Now, when that, when the Americans took hold of that, and Danny DeVito made a film out of that, he turned all of that into magic. Yeah? Yes. Now, what happens now for Muslims and stuff? Okay, let's leave Muslims out, out of the equation for now. In the Western world, yeah, what's the difference between a miracle and being able to perform magic? What's the difference in terms of their conception? Yeah. 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 Now, the fuqaha, the legal jurists, the Islamic scholars of fiqh, they have an, a concept, very important concept, to pass a judgment on something is a consequence of how you conceptualize it. So, you know, like fiction, if you conceptualize that as a lies, and lies are haram, therefore fiction is haram. Yeah, the very simple way to do it. Right. Logical you, conclusion for that perspective. Yeah. Now, if you conceptualize fiction differently, you conceptualize it as a parable that's a vehicle to teaching a deeper truth, then your hukum on that, your, your grading or your, your judgment on that would be something completely different. A friend of mine who's a student of psychology um, approached me recently asking a question about hypnotherapy. Is hypnotherapy permissible in Islam? And you've seen or he's read conflicting fatawa on this. Right. Uh, this is re- directly relevant to Harry Potter, actually, as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, the reason why some people have said hypnotherapy is haram is because of how they conceptualize hypnotherapy. Now, what they said is this is basically black magic. This is magic. You take insistence from, this, uh, from the jinn to get something supernatural done. Yeah, therefore, this is completely haram. Now, right. that, now, whether that reflects the truth or not is a different story. But if you're going to have that perception of hypnotherapy, then it makes sense. That's what your conclusion is going to be. Right, of course. Yeah. But you ask a psychologist, you ask a student of psychology, what is hypnotherapy? Yeah, you read academic papers on hypnotherapy and you see right. how do they conceptualize it? Does it take any supernatural assistance from the shayateen and the devils and stuff like that? Or is, is there a hard science behind it? Yeah, right. If it doesn't entail any haram, if it doesn't entail any assistance from the jinn and stuff like that, or any, you know, psychic soothsaying, whatever going on, yeah, mm-hmm. then everything is permissible by default until you can prove it to be haram. So now when it comes to Harry Potter, for example, or let's go back to Matilda, yeah, in the Western world, there doesn't seem to be any difference between supernatural events. They'll just call it magic just because it's a nice positive thing. Oh, right. I, at least in our context, sihr or jadu or black magic and stuff is it has a, it has very, a very different negative connotation because yeah. it's black magic. It's not it's not miracles and stuff. Miracles yeah. and mu'ajizat and karamat they don't fall under under black magic mm-hmm. because the the way you conceptualize it is very different. Now most Muslims don't actually know what black magic is, and I'm not going to say I fully understand it either. Yeah, but most people don't know what what it is. You have an idea. But you can't actually define it or give it a clear definition because that definition will decide what's what's halal and what's haram. Yeah. So let's go back to Harry Potter. So let's talk about Matilda. Let's finish off Matilda and go to Harry Potter. In Matilda, just because Danny DeVito turned the miracles into magic, does that mean reading the book is okay, but reading uh, watching the film is wrong, even though it's the same essential story? Yeah. Mm, yeah. But their perception of magic is not the same as taking assistance assistance from the jinn. Do you see where I'm coming from here? Yeah? Yes, yes. Like complete, it's a completely different conception entirely. Yeah, so sihr and magic are not necessarily synonymous. Black magic and magic are not synonymous, at least in English. This is also similar to the concept of riba and interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just because something is interest in English doesn't always mean it's a riba in the sharia. One example would be, yeah, you know how we can pay in installments? Yeah? Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. Now, 
our Asian lot and our Arab lot know this very, very well, yeah? Because we come from uncivilized kind of societies. You go to a shop, you can bargain the life out of them, yeah? They tell you, we'll sell it for 900, $900. We said, no, I'll give you 100 They come down to 750 you go up to 250 and stuff like that, yeah? So you can decide on what that famine is, what the price of that thing is, yeah? The object that you're trying to buy. Right. Yeah? So whether you end up paying 900 whether you end up paying 100 is fine. The transaction is valid. Because the exact same... Paying- yeah, because what you're paying is in exchange of what you're receiving, yeah, completely. So if you pay $900 for something, and then somebody else comes and haggles better than you, and they pay $100 for something, it doesn't right. mean you've just paid $800 of a day, but it doesn't mean that. Whereas in English, that could work, because generally people here are a lot more civilized in that, you know, if it says $399, you pay $399, you don't haggle, yeah? If it says right. this is $1,000, this is $1,000, yeah? So now what happens is, some shops or stores or whatever would say if you pay outright and buy it right now you can have it for a thousand dollars straight yeah but right. if you choose to pay in installments we'll charge you let's say a hundred dollars per month and by the end of the year you'll pay a total of twelve hundred dollars one thousand two hundred dollars but they would consider that two hundred dollars of interest but we wouldn't consider that two hundred dollars of labor it's not this is you're paying in installments a completely fine transaction all of that twelve hundred dollars is going in exchange of the phone or the car or whatever you're buying so even though, the, conceptually speaking, in the Western world, or at least in the English-speaking world, the word interest is used loosely, the word reba, when it comes to sharia, we don't use it loosely. So it's very stringent. Sorry? I said it, our definition is far more stringent. Yeah, and it's clearer. This is what it is, it's clearer. There's no vagueness there. So when it comes to magic, for example, it's loose. In English, they use it loosely because there aren't really ramifications. Whereas for us, sihr has huge ramifications. So again, the definition needs to be really clear, but in Muslim consciousness, in collective Muslim consciousness, I don't think we have a clear definition of sihr, but we do have a general understanding of you specifically take the aid of shayateen to perform some supernatural stuff. Yeah, Right. Most most Muslim cultures kind of have that understanding too, that like, this is sketchy, right? Like there's always that whole wariness and, you know, that's why everybody even does like ta'wiz and whatever to like protect themselves against it because we do have that embedded idea of this is bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, but what is it that's bad? Yeah, is it something supernatural happening that's bad? Or is it specifically taking the aid of shayateen to try to challenge God? Is that what's bad? Right. Yeah. Because if something supernatural is bad, yeah, then what happens when it comes to, like, let's say Harry Potter. Okay, you could say Harry Potter's haram because in your opinion it's got magic or sihr or whatever, yeah? But what right. about sci- sci-fi stories like time traveling? Yeah. So if time exactly. traveling is basically impossible, yeah. But if somebody, you know, in sci-fi, you imagine that, yeah, this is basically going to be permissible, mm-hmm. possible, and then they go back in time, and then it affects the future, it, it messes around with other, you could say, in, in some sense, right. is that going to be haram because it's sihr as well? Because it's supernatural? It's not. I don't think it is because there's right. no concept of sihr going on. There's no concept yeah. of taking the assistance of jinn to create some supernatural activity right. that right. challenges the power of God. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's no challenging the power of God here by teaming up with the devil or holding hands with the devil. That's not going on. Interestingly enough, I mean, science fiction, at least within the Western tradition, is often related to humans reflecting on whether there's, you know, a higher power out there, the vastness of the universe, a lot of reflection, very existential reflection at that. You know, our place in the universe, are we the only ones out there? Those are themes that are very commonly explored in science fiction. And I think those are powerful themes to reflect about and and consider. And 
for us as Muslims, if we are reading these stories from even from a, a Muslim perspective or a Muslim lens, we can have a deeper appreciation because we can tie that into, for example, like ayat where Allah is telling us to reflect upon the majesty of the universe and the galaxies and all of that, right? And it, it all ties very neatly, actually, with a lot of our beliefs. I'm not entirely sure how much I agree with that, but I'll take your word for um <laughs> You know, for some of it, because I, I have a lot of skepticism when they talk about the power of the universe and Mother Nature. I, I think a lot of that shit. No, 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 no. I wasn't meaning that so much as, uh, yeah. you know, like the physical. You the mean physical. nature in general, yeah. and yes. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I get all of that. And I take your point here, yeah. Now, when it comes to something specific like Harry Potter, for example, yeah, a lot of Christians in like Texas and stuff, they started burning the Harry Potter books, mm-hmm. yeah. And you yep. can understand why they did that, because it's magic is magic, yeah? But again, like, I read the entire Harry Potter series as an adult, by the way. I never read them as a kid. Okay. Obviously, the world was different back then. I used to mock people, yeah, yeah uh, stuff <laughs> for, for reading, like, stories and novels and stuff, because it wasn't cool enough, yeah? Uh, and then, obviously, in my study days and things, I thought this stuff was haram, yeah? And I stayed away from all of that. I didn't have an interest in uh, fiction anyway, because I was more interested in very factual, hard kind of usoodi things, yeah? Like, right. Yeah. Hadith, usul al-fiqh, and tafsir and stuff like that, Arabic as a language. I go into literature, yeah, poetry and some other things as well. But then what happened is that's what led to eventually questioning a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to go into all of that. So in Harry Potter, I read Harry Potter in lockdown, yeah, in the, in, during the pandemic. Uh-huh, 2020, yeah. 2020 lockdown. for you. I had two months before university restarted and I clocked the entire thing during during those two months, yeah, all seven books, and I read the whole thing. So as an adult, yeah, uh, I read that for specific reasons. I actually read that to appreciate, to, to get an idea of um, what storytelling is because at university when we were doing the whole um, Islamic pedagogy on Quranic storytelling and storytelling, mm-hmm. how storytelling is an important pedagogical method that the Quran employs, I thought, you mm-hmm. know what, I need to look at this a lot more because I've always taken this for granted. So I thought right. in order to appreciate Quranic storytelling, I need to know what storytelling is. Yeah. I need to know right. what stories actually are. Let me start with Harry Potter for other reasons I'm not going to get into. But, <laughs> um, so I did all of that and there was a, so much relatability in there. But again, the point is because I read it as an adult and I ha- hadn't read them as a child, uh, all of these plot twists and everything, I fell for almost every single one of them, apart from the ones <laughs> that I had a spoiler for. Yeah. But if I didn't have a spoiler, every single one of those plot twists took me by surprise. Got you. And, it caught me out and all the foreshadowing and all of that stuff. I really, really appreciated the power of storytelling mm-hmm. and I connected with it on a very deep level. And I, I realized why it changed so many people's lives. I realized right. why an entire generation of children in the 90s and 2000s became readers through Harry Potter. I totally understand yeah. what happened here. Yeah? But now, anyway, my point is I read the entirety of Harry Potter and there is no gins and devils and stuff like that involved. There are some parts you could think, hold on, this is getting a bit graphic or a little bit weird. Just some bits in the thingy. But right. overall, yeah, it's not really sihr or it's not as sihr as we understand it. And right. it's not about the evil stuff because it's about the triumph of good over evil. So exactly. anything that is bad, they are depicted as bad. And yep. the, the neutral or good people are depicted as good people who want to stand up for, you know, Justice. the people who will be... Yeah, yeah. So again, it's like, can the argument of sihr even apply to Harry Potter? That's a question worth having, but I, I'm not entirely convinced that it applies at all. And, and I haven't been convinced for many years, actually. Even when I thought, you know, okay, this stuff is permissible, I still didn't get into it. I still didn't start reading Harry Potter and stuff just because it's permissible. It's only when I had a reason to that I started looking into all of that and then went into so many other things as well. But no, my point is, if our conception of something is wrong, then our conclusion about that perception mm-hmm. would be wrong as well. And exactly. if we 
If we perceive of something as a halal thing, then our judgment of that will also will conclude it to be halal. Absolutely. I want to say too, like, okay, so I was a Harry Potter kid. Like Harry Potter was one of the, you know, defining moments of my childhood. And I grew up on the books. And interestingly, I I grew up reading all of these while also being raised in a very Salafi household. And this might not make sense for a lot of people because like, you know, they're like, uh, what kind of Salafi parents do you have if they let you read Harry Potter? But fiction and reading was one of the few forms of entertainment that we were allowed. You know, we stayed away from screens and whatever. And Something that I personally found valuable, especially since I was, what, like nine when the first book came out? I, I was quite young. And it was having an understanding. Like my parents did tell us, like, look, in the real world, this is what Sahar is, you know, dealing with shayateen, dealing with the jinn and all this kind of stuff. And this is wrong. And this is haram. And this is sinful. And we absolutely do not act on it in the real world. But whatever you're reading, that's different. It's fake. It's false. It's it's just a story. And so having that clear definition by itself already made it easier to understand. Now, I have a lot of Muslim parents telling me, well, you know, kids find it hard to separate reality and, and fiction. And they're going to start thinking that this is okay. And, you know, what if they start repeating, you know, the spells and so on and so forth. And I don't know, maybe it is because, again, like I had from a very young age, that clear distinction. I don't think it's that hard for kids to understand either. Like kids know the difference. Most kids, like if they're like older than four or five, the difference between playing pretend and and reality. And of course kids have imagination. <laughs> but that's not the same thing as, oh my goodness, now they're going to engage in sahar. You know what I mean? You've got to give kids a lot more slack here. Yeah? Give them a lot more credit. I work in a publishing house here. Yeah? Uh, not mm-hmm. the same publishing house I was talking about earlier. I worked in a completely different publishing house mm-hmm. that um, specializes in educational content and textbooks for children to learn about Islam or how to live as Muslims in modern day Britain. Now, you know, you have a lot of like teachers or parents and people like that who um, they just dismiss the intelligence of their children. They go, oh, these books are too hard for that particular age group or there's too many advanced vocabulary here. And you think, really, it's probably too hard for some types of people, or maybe it was hard, difficult for you at that age. But if you really see what's going on in schools, yeah, like, alhamdulillah, I was an intelligent child when I was at school, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know what kind of level we were doing academic things at, yeah. Obviously, right. it wasn't university level or anything, but it was, it was a good standard. But you don't see, at least in my context, I didn't see that same intellectual rigor in uh, my maktab or in any islamic context and stuff yeah Mm -hmm. so now that we're trying to up the game and what we do is we don't actually make it higher than their level you know when you study education and pedagogy there's a thing called developmental psychology right developmental education and you look at age appropriateness yeah exactly yes you look at you know the national curriculum you look at things like the literacy levels of certain age groups and what's average and high-end reading ages and things like that and we space out how we write certain things to cater for different difficulty standards. Yes. And it's carefully researched and matches the same standards as, you know, as what they're doing in the mainstream schools. Yeah. Right. So now when, when parents or teachers see that and they, you know, dismiss it or they think this stuff is too advanced, it's not because your, your kids are more than capable of it and you don't give your children enough credit. Yes. There's definitely the sense of like dumbing things down that is doing Muslim kids especially a disservice because it's almost like we're telling them, oh, we don't expect you to be smart enough to understand these concepts. We don't expect that you could use your intellect in this way at this age. And that really harms us, I think, especially since 
outside of, again, a Muslim context, there is an expectation. In fact, in many cases, particularly, again, in non-Muslim educational environments, there's often a push to see, you know, can you do more? And there's praise for if you're able to to advance, right? You get to skip a grade or you're, you're praised for being able to, you know, read at a higher level. And, you know, these are recognized skills and they're encouraged as opposed to, again, with Muslims, it's very much like, oh, no, 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 they, they we can't talk about these things yet because, you know, they're not, they're not able to understand it, but we're not making an effort to help them understand. And I think that goes back to this whole differentiation between fiction and reality and just being able to explain to our kids and just having to understand what imagination is, just because your kids are imagining and, you know, pretending like they're, they're playing Harry Potter games or whatever, that doesn't inherently mean now that they're going to get drawn into Sihar itself, especially if you're able to provide, again, that Islamic foundation of like, hey, within our deen, this is how we conceptualize of this. And this, this is reality. And this is how we behave in the real world. And then everything else, you know, is is separate. It's different. Let your imagination run wild, but don't, don't cross a particular boundary and just I don't think it's as hard as people make it out to be. You're totally right here. And I think sometimes what happens with adults is we project our own insecurities onto the children, yeah? Or we try to live vicariously through the children. So you know things like, you know, the existence of God or how to understand Qadr and free will, yeah? Or, you know, destiny and fate and free will, those types of difficult topics. Children at a certain age group, you know, like 11, 12, 13-year-olds, you'll be surprised. They can they can take all of this in, Yeah. But when adults underestimate that, what happens is these same children will grow up learning about, you know, the challenges to theology, yeah, and about the concept of evil, suffering, and why atheists would believe that God doesn't exist and things like that. And they're able to understand these, I'm going to call it shubuhat, because they resemble truths. They're not truths, but they resemble clear evidence, but it's obviously vague untruths. But they can understand that. They can understand the perspective of an atheist, yeah. Now, the parents will think, oh, you're not going to understand, you know, Tawheed. You know. Tawheed is very simple. You can explain it to a five-year-old, yeah? But, right. like, you can do a right to Shubuhat. You can respond to every single one of those allegations and construct a clear theology for, you know, teenagers and stuff. And they are more than capable. They are more than capable of understanding it. But what happens is because the adults have a very inherited kind of religion, a descriptive religion, rather than honing in on their own abilities or using their own intellectual curiosity to actually understand the existence of God and the nature of the universe and what the what's the purpose of life and things like that. Because they don't have that, they are ill-equipped to, mm-hmm. you know, the parents and stuff in general, they're ill-equipped to answer these questions or have these discussions with their children. So it's not actually the children who are incapable. They're more than capable of it. But I think parents sometimes underestimate that. Interestingly, I asked um, Sheikh Hatim Al-Awni this question a couple of years ago about Harry Potter. Yeah, Now, Sheikh Hatim Al-Awni doesn't live in the UK, or he's not from America or Canada right. or the Western world. Yeah? He's from Saudi Arabia. He grew up in Ta'if, and he's based in Mecca, and he's a mm-hmm. professor at Umm Al-Qur'an University in Mecca. He's a specialist in, in tafsir and hadith studies, right? Now, right. he's coming from a very different perspective. You know, I live in a very different world. He's in a very right. different world. So I asked him in an online gathering once, I go, here in the West, people read things like Harry Potter or other fictitious stories, imaginary mm-hmm. stories. And sometimes there's put on things going on, like, you know, people drink wine or they're eating pork or something like that. Yes. Yeah? So what do you say about this? And what kind of guidance would you give for Muslims in the West? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised at his answer because he said, look, this is no more than a reflection of the reality that you're living in. This just yeah, reflects exactly. your experience. 
Look, mm-hmm. we went to school, yeah. I went to school in the what started in the late nineties and early two thousands, yeah, early to mid two thousands, basically my school time. You know, you had non-Muslims there having pork sandwiches and stuff all the time, yeah. Yeah, Especially- it's literally part of every day. If yeah. you live in the West, this is the normal. This is the dominant society that we live in. We already know these things happen. We already see it happening. Especially when you are a minority, yeah. If mm-hmm. they're having like pork sandwiches for lunch, if they're like sneaking in their parents' alcohol in like ribena bottles or something and drinking that stuff at lunchtime, if they're smoking behind the sheds or something or whatever, yeah, they right. do all sorts of things are going on, yeah. Whether they're dating and doing all sorts of you know interacting with people in, in inappropriate ways. You see all of that firsthand. Forget reading about it in a novel. <laughs> Forget watching it on the TV. You are stuck nine till three in this kind of environment, and this is all around you five days a week. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, look, you should re- really should have a problem with that first. But because we know this is a reality, we teach our children to, you know, navigate this in the proper way. There are people who have different views, and we have different values. We navigate things in our way, and while we disagree with the actions and practices that other people do. You know, we're not going to jump at them for it. We're not going to start beating people up for having a pork sandwich at school. Yeah? Exactly. So you have to apply the same common sense kind of logic to all of these other things as well. Like, I'll challenge any adult to tell me that reading a fictitious story in the form of a book and imagination is going to have a worse impact on a child's behavior and beliefs and practices than spending six hours a day in a school in a non-Muslim society and culture where this is what they're absorbing left, right and centre from their friends, from their teachers, from their just, you know, pop culture, essentially. I really, really doubt anybody can genuinely claim that that kind of environment growing up in a Western society will have less of an impact than reading fictitious novels. Right, for sure. Drawing forward from uh, from Harry Potter into another kind of subgenre of a fantasy, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Percy Jackson series. So that was like a little bit after my time, but that's like extremely, extremely popular and based off of Greek legends about demigods. Um, And I'll be honest, I actually was fascinated by various types of mythologies growing up. So ancient Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology, whatever it might be. I was was very, very immersed in all those. And again, sounds weird coming from somebody from a Salafi background, but... But, you know, there's an appreciation, again, for, like, just the fascination of how humans operate and things we think up and imagine and the ways that we're, humans have tried to explain the world. And so, obviously, again, you know, from an Al-Qaeda perspective, this is is pure shit, whatever, but we're not reading it, or at least I certainly wasn't, reading in the sense of, like, oh, let me learn about these shirky beliefs and, like, believe in them now, right? Um, And Percy Jackson, again, is very much similar to Harry Potter in the sense of, using certain concepts or ideas and reworking them in a different way to tell different stories. So like, what's your take on that? Since this is now like the big thing, it's being adapted for the screen now too. So, I personally haven't read the Percy Jackson series, but I am familiar with it and uh, I'm familiar with the general concept of it. And it's not the only only thing out there, like in the more modern time, as in closer to 2021 words, you also have the Song of Achilles, which um, reintroduces yeah, it reintroduces Greek mythology to a new audience where it doesn't assume you have prior knowledge to it and stuff like that. Now, in the Western world, it makes sense. You know, people are going to be interested in all these, you know, imaginary things and imagination and um, uh, drawing back on the origins of cultural references. You know, like in the Western world, you have ghosts and vampires and all these things, yeah? Yeah. They originate from somewhere. And that somewhere is like people generally have an interest in tracking down or tracing the origins of stuff. You've got to remember, Western Europe was a very pagan culture, especially, you know, before Christianity took over. 
So the Greeks had like, you know, all these false things that they used to worship. Romans obviously were pagans and stuff as well. And, you know, they have their legends, they have their stories, they have their cultural references, all of these things happened. Now, right. I don't have a clear answer to this. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a clear answer to this. Or I don't have um, a strict opinion on this. Mm. But that said, there are general guidelines that we can look at. Yeah. So one thing would be, does it promote bad things like shirk, like sihr or like zina and other things? Does it promote that in a good light? If mm. it doesn't, those things would be obviously bad. Now, if it's something you're exploring, not with the purpose of entertainment and consumption, but more specifically to analyze or to study critically, and you have a reason to analyze these things, then it's going to be completely different for that person. Yeah. So mm. things like um, shirk is obviously shirk, but at the same time, these demigods are not gods. So these, mm-hmm. you know, half human, half gods and things like that, they aren't gods to begin with. So if right. they're using that word, does that really affect how we perceive it to be? No, it can. I understand it completely can, yeah, which is why I don't have a clear answer. However, we do find references, at least from our tradition, where people have engaged with the literature of other civilizations and they have looked into their stories or recreated them and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from a, at least from a scholarly scene, now you've got scholars and you've got literateurs, you've got like, experts in literature. Just because someone's an expert in literature, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were scholars of fiqh and tafsir and aqid and stuff right. like that. Then you've got legends like Sheikh Tahir ibn Ashur, rahimahullah. He was just a legend of the legends here. Yeah? Now, he was a like a master of literature and he was a phenomenal exegete of the Quran. In his tafsir, this is the same scholar I quoted earlier. He passed away in 1973. Yeah. Now, despite being a recent scholar, or it's probably because he's a recent scholar, that he was very well read and he looked at a huge range. He was very, very well read, mashallah. Right. So in his tafsir, he actually references or he mentions Homer's Iliad. Ah. Exactly. So now those who are into literature have probably heard of the ancient Greeks a couple of thousand years ago. Homer had the Odyssey and the Iliad and things like yeah. that. But for those who don't know, these are ancient Greek texts from before Islam, before Christianity. I haven't read those, but if I'm not mistaken, there's going to be a lot of shirk and uh, um, oh yeah, I mean, there's obviously plenty of references to like different gods and the underworld. And for those who haven't read the Iliad or the Odyssey, think like Hercules. Like if you, if you've seen the yeah. Disney movie, you know that comes from originally from Homer. So yeah, so Hercules and Zeus again, they become cultural references, which is why people will know about them even if they don't know in depth. Now, Sheikh Tahir ibn Ashur, rahimahullah, despite being from the Arab lands, despite being from what Tunisia, I believe he was from. You know, he was familiar with these types of works and literature, and he it's no surprise that he was a king of literature. And the fact that he's aware of other civilizations and other cultures and other literary traditions, it'll only help him refine his own mastery of literature. I was quite interested, actually, when I found him quoting, not necessarily quoting a passage, but he mentioned or oh, there's something similar in the Iliad. And I was thinking, wow, this is the first time I've seen any Arabic reference to the Iliad. And that in a tafsir book, in a, in a book that's commentating yeah. on the Quran by a, an absolute gem of a gem, an unparalleled scholar of recent times. So his book is just completely original. It's not like copy and paste of or right, right. previous tafsir. He's a very original scholar. And so the fact that people are likely to have engaged with it shows that they, clearly they would have seen a nuance in this. And Sheikh Tahir ibn Ashur isn't just a random scholar. He was a a master of various disciplines. Yeah, including fiqh and usul al-fiqh. So he's actually got a book on maqasid al-shari'at al-islamiyya. Yeah, so the mm-hmm. wider goals or objectives of the sharia. So he's being intimately familiar with these types of things. There clearly has to be some kind of nuance. And even in the, in the literary world, you've got the Egyptian Kamil Kailani, 
He's rendered a lot of classical stories from many different civilizations, Arab and non-Arab, including biblical and Shakespeare, and even the Hindu traditions, into modern fusha, yeah, some for children or for young readers and things. So it's fusha, fasih, clean Arabic, so not in dialect, but it's not ancient or archaic language. It's a very new right. and modern kind of language. So he's got like Samson and Delilah. He's, he rendered that. He's oh, wow. Shakespeare stuff. And more interestingly, or more relevant to our discussion here, He's got a Hindu one as well. It's called Firabati Shayateen. So in the jungle of the devils. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. the story of Rama and Siti. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So those who are familiar with India or Hindu yeah, yeah. Uh, legends and mythology or whatever. It, now, obviously, like, these are shitky things, isn't it? Yeah. To a degree, it can be shitky. But in terms of a story, it's just a story of princes and stuff like that. That later people are taking them as gods is a completely you know, right. different situation. So while I don't have an opinion on this, whether it's permissible or not, I lean towards permissibility, but inappropriateness. I think for a lot of people, yeah. it would be inappropriate to get involved in this unless you clearly know what you're doing and you've got your head screwed on and you've got a reason for getting in, into all of this. So I it is a bit of a foundation as well. I think just like having your own solid foundation spiritually and theologically. And again, I, the same thing with the Harry Potter, right? Like understanding the difference between reality versus fiction or what people have projected as you know their theologies but I mean anybody who's done who studied literature even in a, at a high school level I feel you know you understand that even when you study it in high school you're not taking these things as like a religion class you're taking it as a literature class because what are the underlying themes right what are the underlying messages these are the ways that humans of the past tried to make sense of their world or these were their imaginings. These were the ways that they they shared these stories and, again, very human themes of jealousy or anger or whatever, 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 you know. Yeah, and it's nothing new either. Like, yeah, you're, you're right. Nobody's going to look at Dr. Frankenstein's monster and think, yeah, this stuff is real and we can end up copying it. But at the same time, like, this is nothing new. We don't need to borrow these things from other civilizations because we have this in our own tradition as well. Things like Khalil Wadimna, things like Haybin Yaqlan, all of these things that happened. When you've got, like, animals, literally animals, talking to each other, saying salam to each other, quoting hadiths to each other, yeah? In, in, in fictitious tales, they're quoting hadiths mm-hmm. to each other. Can you believe it, yeah? And we study that till today in Islamic seminaries. We study that. It tells you, look, we've got our own tradition that appreciates this nuance or it celebrates the literary tradition. So we don't need to feel intellectually inferior just because we've lost a lot of that in the last hundred or so years. Right. Because we and we don't to feel like a, a resistance or a rejection of that entire creative field either, just because, again, those of us in the West are very often just disconnected from the fact that our own Islamic tradition has engaged with the creative arts. Yeah, and this is why I think parents and adults have a responsibility, you know, because you know what you said earlier about having strong foundations in theology and tawhid and shirk and knowing those things properly in a convincing and compelling way. That's a responsibility that parents and teachers have. And once you train the children or the next generation to be, you know, resilient human beings who are confident in who they are, and they're, they're confident Muslims navigating the modern world, yeah, they wouldn't have these kind of problems. Or you don't need to be afraid of them not being able to differentiate between fact and fiction because, you know, you've trained them up from beforehand. They're not going to be influenced by somebody eating pork or drinking alcohol or talking about a demigod or, you know, having some kind of other types of preferences that are prohibited right. uh, in Islam. Yeah. So they're not going to be influenced by that, or at least you can mitigate that influence by, you know, nipping all of that in the bud from the beginning. So, so instead of hiding away and never addressing knowledge and trying to keep people uninformed, 
That's always mm-hmm. been a wrong way to go about it. You know, like in Urdu, they say things like, oh, I'm co- yeah? So keep the ignorant people ignorant. What that does is, you know, if you're going to cage people away from society, you might think you've won the short game. But in the long run, you've created a huge harm. The way to solve ignorance is to give them knowledge, empower them with knowledge. Not to enable the ignorance, which then ends up negatively impacting the entire society. Exactly. Especially when these ignorant people grow up and they become ignorant adults who become the mosque committee members. You know, they have power in society and stuff and they get to gatekeep or they shape public perception of religion. And then these types of sensitive topics that we're talking about, you can't talk about it just because your job could be at risk or people can start saying, you know, what kind of mullahs are these saying all these modern things? None of our ancestors said any of that. Your ancestors didn't say that because they thought you could handle it and you couldn't handle it. So they didn't say it. (laughs) So, or that just wasn't their priority. So if people had survivalistic priorities, like, you know, getting the British out of India or anything like that in the Al Saud, whatever happened over there in Turkey, the yeah. fall of the Caliphate over there. You know, everybody had problems in uh, other parts of the world. And when they came to the UK, when they came to the US, there are other problems that they had to deal with. So, you know, it's not always a priority. We're kind of living in privileged times. Like, yeah, we have our difficulties of, you know, the neocons and the liberals and all these kind of things as well. Right. But we do have some kind of privilege as well. We have to be grateful for, you know, we can travel around, we can access literature. We don't have to worry so much about the STEM anymore as we did when we were younger, especially right. ourselves. I was, I'm very STEM inclined and I still am, but I've gained an appreciation for humanities and the arts that I didn't have before. Yeah. But the fact that I can do that is because we're kind of in a privileged position. And I think we do need right. to be grateful for that. We don't need to just bash the people before us because it, right. it is a little bit unfair. Absolutely. Well, we are running out of time now, um, but I wanted to say for such a thorough discussion. I think that the listeners will benefit as much as I personally did from this entire discussion has found it so valuable and really, really insightful because, as you said, there's there's so much more within our scholarly tradition that we're not even aware of half the time. And the things that are being pushed as religious norms or religious teachings are very often not reflective of our larger history. And we as Muslims do have a responsibility, first of all, to establish our theological foundations so that we're not having these crises of faith over Harry Potter, of all things, but to be able to appreciate and understand our spiritual tradition better and to be able to engage at an intellectual level as well as an emotional level with wider traditions as well, whether that's, you know, dabbling in it as we do with fiction in the West or at a more academic level as Ibn Ashur did, alhamdulillah. You know, like I really found that incredible, just that reference to the Iliad and its tafsir book of all things. It's the kind of thing like I would nerd out about um, because it's just so unexpected, again, from our own conceptions of what Islamic scholarship should look like or include in this almost knee-jerk reaction that somebody might have. I mean, can you imagine fast forward a couple hundred years and a tafsir book will reference Harry Potter? Like, how would people take that, right? But it truly is a cultural phenomenon, a global phenomenon that has impacted even Muslims to such a wide extent. So, yeah, that was just incredibly insightful. Jazakallah khair. I really appreciate your time and, and your knowledge and your understanding that you shared with us. Thank you for inviting me here. And to the listeners, stay tuned. Don't forget to stay subscribed to the podcast. Leave your own comments and questions and, and reflections on the post, and we would love to address them. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. 
Hey, everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.